Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Have you guys ever played the game Jenga? Anybody know that game, that classic game? Yeah, it's been around for quite a long time. What you do is you simply take wooden blocks and you stack them up into a tower. And then you and your opponent, you take turns removing one block at a time until what happens? Falls down. It collapses, right? And if it collapses on you, you lose. And in the game of Jenga, there's there's always this one moment towards the end of the game where all of the easy blocks have been pulled out. And you know the tower's like starting to get really wobbly and you realize that there's only one block left holding the whole thing up. And guess what? It's your turn. And you have to pull that one central block and the entire tower comes crashing down in defeat. That one block was holding everything else up. When it comes to the gospel, there are several foundational blocks There are things we absolutely need to know about Jesus and who he is and what he's done to save us. But there is one particular doctrine, that word doctrine simply means belief. There's one particular doctrine that the famous Christian Martin Luther called the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. It's so central to the gospel that if we remove this one block, everything else we know and believe will fall like a Jenga tower. This block is that important and foundational. And the doctrine he was talking about has come to be called sola fide. That's our message title today. It's a Latin phrase that simply means faith alone. Sola fide is one of five solas that came out of the Reformation. The other four are sola gratia, which means grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. And soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. And look, I know this may sound like some boring history stuff to you, but this is really important because these five little phrases really sum up for us what makes the gospel, well, the gospel. And they came about at a time when the church had really lost its way. See, prior to the Reformation in the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church had distorted the gospel message. I don't mean to oversimplify it. There was a lot going on in history at that time, but they began to teach, basically, that in order to be saved, you needed Jesus plus other things like baptism and confession and prayer. And that's when guys like Martin Luther came along and said, hey, hey, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. So the five solos were really a way to show what made Christianity distinct, what made the gospel good news And while all five of these truths are essential, sola fide was at the heart of Martin Luther's passionate defense of the gospel. To the point where he actually said this, I quote, Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. And that is my goal this morning. (laughs) I want to beat this idea into our heads. That we are saved through faith and faith alone. Because by this one doctrine, our church stands and falls. This morning, we will stand on this message as we continue our series in Romans through Romans chapter 4. You'll remember before the holiday season, we walked through the first three chapters of Romans. We established at the beginning that this is a letter written to the church in Rome by the Apostle Paul. Paul had never actually met these people when he wrote, so he wanted to establish his ministry. He wanted to address some division that was taking place between Jewish and Gentile Christians. 
But most importantly, Paul wanted to lay out the gospel message that he had come to believe and preach in all its fullness. We saw the central idea of the whole letter in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul then began to break down these two verses by starting with the bad news of the gospel. Do you remember that? All of us have sinned, all of us are guilty, and therefore all of us are deserving of God's judgment. And and there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to, to fix that. Religion won't save us. Morality won't save us. We cannot earn our salvation. Therefore, we are in desperate need of help from someone else. So we summarized Romans 1 through 3 with this simple phrase, why everyone needs Jesus. Today we move into a new section. In chapter 4, Paul's going to zoom in on something that is central to the gospel message. He's going to answer the question, if we cannot save ourselves, then how can we be saved? If we, if we know that Jesus died and rose from the dead, what, what do we do with that? How then should we respond to the message? Well, Paul answers these questions by explaining the importance of faith. Sola fide, faith alone. So let's walk through this passage together this morning. We're going to unpack it as we go, and then we'll come back at the end and see what exactly we can do with this message. Look with me at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul wrote, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you remember what we said earlier in this series about the style of Paul's writing? Paul is forming an argument. He's trying to make a point. So he uses rhetorical questions a lot to make that point. And that's what he's doing here. And let's remember that at the end of Romans 3, Paul said that righteousness, being right, being made right with God, comes through faith in Jesus. And so he concluded chapter 3, look at it, by saying, hey, who can boast? Who can boast? Who has any reason to look to themselves or to think more highly of themselves or to boast of anything? We're not saved by anything we can do, but by faith alone. So now to start chapter 4, Paul wants to really drive this point home. And he does this by using the best possible example he could use. He points back to Abraham. Now, we got to understand the massive importance of Abraham, especially for the Jewish people. Let's think back for a minute, all the way back to the very first book of the Bible. What book of the Bible is that? Okay, some of you are with me. It's Genesis, right? It says, after the Garden of Eden, after the global flood with Noah, after the Tower of Babel, we have generations of people who came, lived, and died. And one day, God chose to speak. He speaks to Abram. He says, I pick you. Out of all the people on the planet, you, Abram, are going to be my people. I'm going to make your family and you into a great nation, and I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. Only one problem. Abram and his wife Sarah had no children. Well, we know the story. God took care of that. He gave Abram and Sarah a miracle baby boy named Isaac. And this began this line of people, all the people we read about in the Old Testament. 
Guys like Moses and David and Daniel, women like Esther. And they all came from Abraham and eventually came Jesus. So Abraham was viewed as the father of the faith. It's why we sing that great song. Who knows it? Who knows the song? Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father. Okay, some of y'all got it. Some of y'all got it. If there was one guy that Paul could call on to really make his point, it was Abraham. He was the perfect example of faith. And he just so happened to carry a lot of weight with this audience. It's the same reason that if you drive north on I-35 to downtown Kansas City, you will see one man's face on every billboard. Who is it? (laughs) It's Sir Patrick Mahomes, right? Why do they do that? Well, businesses know if they can get Mahomes to sell their product, people will buy it. In the same way, Paul wants us to see if this gospel is true of Abraham, then we must buy it. So look back with me at verse 1. His question, he asked, what about Abraham, our forefather? What was gained by him? If anyone was justified by works, if anyone had a reason to boast, it was him. And Paul's pointing out something that Jewish people believed at the time. They had such a high view of Abraham that they believed he was basically perfect and had earned his salvation. But notice what Paul says. He says, but not before God. Even Father Abraham and all his greatness and importance to the faith, even he could not boast before God. Even he could not earn his salvation by good works. So Paul points to the way that Abraham was made right by God. And he does this by quoting Genesis 15, 6. Look at it. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul wants us to see that what he's saying, this gospel message, this is not new. He didn't invent this, but rather this is the way God is always operating. He wants us to see this this connection. And this raises an important question that you and I wonder sometimes. Have you ever wondered this? How were people in the Old Testament saved? These people who lived before Jesus ever came to the earth and died, how were they saved? Was it by keeping the law? Was it by being good? How did that work? Well, this verse tells us. People who lived before Jesus were saved just like us who now live after Jesus. It's faith. Whereas we look look back and put our faith in what Jesus did, the Old Testament saints looked forward and put faith in what Jesus would do. And no, they didn't know his name and all the details of the story like we do, but they knew that God was going to send a Savior, and they trusted in that promise, and they were saved through their faith. We see that all throughout uh, Hebrews chapter 11, you know, the great chapter called the Hall of Faith, where it talks all about the faith of the Old Testament believers. Jesus himself said that no one comes to the Father except through him. So Paul's showing us this is always been God's plan to save people through faith in Jesus. And the key word, I don't want you to miss in this Genesis 15, 6 quote, it's the word counted. This word means to credit. It's a a financial term. If you went to your bank tomorrow morning and you said to the bank teller, you know, I, I love my pastor so much that I want to take all my money and credit it to his account. Here's what they do. They'd probably make you sign something. But they would take your money, and they would give it to me. And all God's people said, amen. No, just me. But this is what Paul means. When Abraham believed, when he had faith that God would do what he promised he would do, God credited his account with perfect righteousness. He was counted as righteous as being made right with God. 
Paul then goes on to explain this concept with another example. Look at verses 4 through 8. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul uses here first the example of work. When you work, when you perform a job, you get a wage, right? When I got my first job as a busboy, the minimum wage was $5.15. You guys remember that? Some of you remember much lower minimum wage. But So what happened was when I worked my hours, according to law, I was owed that $5.15 for every hour I worked. Paying me was not optional, right? Even though I'm sure there were days my boss did not want to pay me. But in God's economy, things work different. We're not saved by working hard and God owing us the payment of heaven. That's how most people think about God. That's how every other religion in the world operates. I work hard enough and God pays me what I'm owed. But for Christians, this is not true. We've already seen that we cannot work hard enough or do enough to earn God's salvation, but rather it's a gift. God is not obligated to save us or to give us anything. But rather, he, he freely chooses to save us. That's called grace. So Paul says when we believe in God who justifies the ungodly, God counts our faith as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. He takes sinners and he makes them forgiven and innocent and clean and right with him. God enters into relationship with, with sinful people like me. When we trust in that, that's when God saves us. That's, that's God's grace through our faith. Paul then uses the second most popular man in Judaism to make his point. That's King David. If Abraham is Patrick Mahomes, then David is Travis Kelsey, okay? These were the two leaders of the Jewish faith. Paul used Abraham to make his point. Now he uses David. And he quotes from Psalm 32, 1 through 2. And in this psalm, David talks about the blessing of being forgiven by God. He doesn't say blessed are those who are forgiven because they're good people or blessed are those who try hard enough and do good things and earn God's forgiveness. No. Excuse me. Why are we forgiven? How are we forgiven? Look at verse 8. I want you to zero in with me again on that word count. This is the same word that we see from Genesis 15, 6, where it says that God counted to Abraham righteousness. David tells us, We're forgiven because God chooses not to count our sin. See, that's the key here. If God were to go off what we earned, if he were to give us the payday that we deserved, we would get his judgment in hell. But God chooses not to count that, and he chooses to count righteousness to us. God takes away what we deserve, and he gives us what we don't. See, that's the blessing of salvation. We see this in Abraham. We see it in David. We see it in the entirety of the story of the Bible. God saves by faith alone. Let's remember the original audience that Paul wrote this letter to. There were Jewish Christians in this church who grew up following the law, obeying the rules. They loved Abraham. They loved David. Now they embrace Jesus. 
Then there were Gentile Christians who didn't know anything about the Ten Commandments or Abraham and David and these rituals and things, and yet they too followed Jesus. So the people wondered, Paul, who does this apply to? Abraham was a Jew. David was a Jew. So we know Jewish faith saves, right? But what about these Gentile people? What about their faith? Let's keep reading and see how Paul addresses this, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Look, I know I had to say the word circumcision about a hundred times. Let's remember, it's a very important word to Paul. Because circumcision was given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament as a sign of their covenant with God. The key word there is the word sign. Paul's already explained that being circumcised did not save Jewish people, did not make them right with God. Whether it was like baptism, it was an outward act that pointed to an inward heart change. So if that was the case, then why does it matter what order Abraham's faith and circumcision came in? Well, it matters because if Abraham was circumcised, then his faith was counted as righteousness, then we might could say that external action had made him right with God. We might could believe that Abraham had somehow earned his salvation through works, but that's not the order that things took place. Paul tells us that Genesis 15 was when Abraham believed and was counted and made righteous. That's when he put his faith in God, and it wasn't until Genesis 17 that Abraham was circumcised, which was some years later. So this shows us that faith and faith alone made Abraham right with God. But Paul wants to use another point here. Because Abraham's faith came first, that is what defines him as the father of God's people. Remember, the Jewish people believed Abraham's father, our father because we're kin to him. Like we're related to him. We're circumcised like him. He's one of us. But notice in verse 11, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. That's the connection to Abraham. It's not external works or keeping rules or following laws. It's faith. It's faith. And that goes for anyone who believes. So again, we, we see this widening of God's plan of salvation. And God's plan all along was not just to save Israel but his plan was to save anyone and everyone who would put faith in Jesus. That's why we too can sing the song, Father Abraham. You know the rest of the words? I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Da, da, da. Whatever. When we put our faith in God like Abraham, we become a part of God's family. We inherit the same promise that Abraham received, and we too have our account credited with righteousness. So one of the big points that sola fide teaches us is that the gospel is for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, or what you've done. Faith and faith alone can make you right with God. So, so here's the salvation formula. Here's the gospel math that Paul is laying out for us. Faith in Jesus 
equals salvation, period. That's it. It's that simple. It's that clear. And for most of us who have been Christians for some time, we, we nod our heads. Yeah, of course. Faith and faith, that's right. Yeah, got it. Do we really believe that? And does this belief really impact our lives? You know, I, I've been a believer long enough to know that for many Christians, including me at times, we're tempted to live with a different formula. We don't say it out loud, but it's right there under the surface. It's faith plus something else equals salvation. Faith plus trying my best to be a good person equals my salvation. Or faith plus church attendance equals salvation. Or faith plus having a good marriage and having good kids equals salvation. Or faith plus serving at church and doing a lot of nice things for people equals salvation. And what happens when we embrace one of those false salvation formulas, we either become spiritually puffed up thinking we've done something to earn God's salvation. That's what happens when we meet that standard of legalism. Or we become spiritually deflated. We doubt our salvation. We feel as though we don't deserve God's love because we fail to live up to our legalistic standard. What we need is to be continually reminded and embrace true gospel math that faith and faith alone equals salvation. It's about the only math I like. And I think there's two ways we can take that truth from this passage and apply it today to our hearts. Here's the first. Ready? Number one. Embrace the extent of your need. The formula for salvation is not just the word faith, it's faith alone. And that word alone is crucial because it means that we must cast aside any other way of salvation. Like we have to understand that faith is the only way. It's our one shot. We got nothing else going for us. And no one illustrates this better than Paul's two examples, Abraham and David. Remember that the first readers of this letter, they would have known all about these two men, just like we do. And even though they really looked up to and idolized these guys, they knew they had some shortcomings. You remember Abraham, how badly he messed things up? Not once, but twice. When he passed through Egypt with his wife, he lied and said she was his sister so that he would not be killed. And through that, he allowed his wife to be sexually exploited by Pharaoh. Go read it. It's crazy. And then later on, when he doubted God's promise to give him his son, he slept with his wife's servant, Hagar. Abram was a very flawed sinner. What about David? You remember his shining moment? He murdered one of his own men, took his wife because he liked the way she looked, and he impregnated her, and then attempted to cover it all up until God exposed him. Later on, God, uh, David sinned against God by conducting a census that God didn't want. And as a result, 70,000 of his own people lost their lives all because of him. David, another very flawed sinner. Despite the great sins of Abraham and David, faith and faith alone was able to save them. But here's the thing. They didn't just need faith because they're bad deeds. They also needed faith despite their good deeds. Because Abraham and David weren't all that bad. We, we've already seen these were great men of God who did great things. God called Abraham to leave his home country and to go to a foreign land, and he just packed everything up and went. He was so obedient that Abraham was willing to go up on the mountain and sacrifice his own son, Isaac. And through his obedience came a whole nation of people that brought Jesus into the world. David did some incredible things too, we know. 
David was called a man after God's own heart. He slayed Goliath, he fought the enemies of God, and he wrote the greatest songbook in the history of the world. Abraham and David did bigger things for God than any of us ever will. And yet it was not their heroic acts or their spiritual works or their remarkable obedience that saved them. It was their faith and their faith alone. If Abraham and David were not too bad to be saved, then neither are you. And if Abraham and David were not good enough to save themselves, then neither are you. They needed faith. And we do too. So embrace the extent of your need. That's number one. Here's the second way we can live out this message of faith alone. Embrace the extent of your provision. If faith alone equals salvation, then that means God has done everything that's needed to save you. You and I, we needed someone to take the judgment for our sin. God provided that by putting the judgment on Jesus on the cross. You and I needed someone to forgive us. God provided that through the death of his own son. You and I needed a perfect record to be accepted before God. God provided that through the perfect life of Jesus. You and I needed eternal life so we wouldn't have to suffer under death, but we could live forever with him. God provided that too by raising Jesus from the dead. Did you hear me say that you provided anything? Did you hear me say that you bring anything to the table? No. God did it all. He's provided everything we need to be saved. Let's imagine it like this. Let's imagine that I'm throwing a huge, big, fancy dinner party, which I would never do. (laughs) Let's imagine there's lots of food and there's fun, there's excitement, there's music, and I invite you to come to my party. You're so lucky. And so like a nice person, you say, oh, man, I'd love to come. What can I bring? I say, well, I'm going to need you to prepare, cook, and bring your best side dish. And it's got to be really, really good. This is an important party. And you're going to go, and you're going to work really hard to make something good and bring that good side dish so you can come to the party. Or maybe I say, well, you know, we're actually having the meal catered at the party, but it's really fancy, really expensive. I'm going to need you to bring $100 if you want to come and eat. And if you want to come, you're going to provide $100. You can pay your way into the party. Let's imagine a third scenario. Let's imagine you say, what can I bring? I really want to come. What can I bring? And I say, nothing. Just bring yourself. You don't have to bring anything. Just come. No, No food, no payment, no gift, nothing. Nope. Just come. It's free. You're invited. Just come. Man, that's the picture of salvation by faith alone. God set the table. He planned the party. He cooked the food. He's provided everything. All you need to do is come. Take a seat at the table and eat up. I love this little phrase we see at the beginning of verse 9. Look at this. It says, is this blessing then only for fill in the blank? That's a really important question we need to answer. Is this blessing of salvation then only for good people? Is this blessing only for people who know the right things to say? Is is this blessing only for people who who have their act together? Is this blessing only for people who haven't messed up their lives too bad? Here's the beauty of sola fide. This blessing is only for everyone. Anyone and everyone can put their faith in Jesus and be saved. You don't need to cook your best side dish. You don't need to put on your best dress or tux and clean yourself up. You don't need to try harder or do more or be better. All you need to do is come. And the Father stands waiting, ready to bring you into the party. He saved you a seat. 
Will you put your faith in him alone? My favorite word to describe faith is the word surrender. It's one of our five S habits we have here at Blue Valley Baptist that we may or identified, adopted many years ago as a church. That word surrender, it means to, to give up, to submit, to turn everything over to Jesus and follow him. See, see that's what faith is. It's giving up on your ability to save yourself. It's walking away from everything else and saying, I'm all in for Jesus. He's all I got. I got nothing else. I'm banking everything, including my own life, on him. Have you made that decision before? Have you put your faith in Jesus to save you? Have you gotten rid of everything else and said, it's just Jesus? Faith in him, that's all I got. Because that's all we need, faith alone. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.